Well, we are in the book of Daniel, and of course, if you're familiar with any of the literature outside of the Christian circles, you know that almost everything in the book of Daniel is controversial. And so we'll be exploring that over the next couple of weeks, but just to bring us back into the story, right, Daniel and his friends, they are rightfully described as POWs right? They, they were living in their land. They were doing their thing. They were growing as young men, and they were ripped out due to war. They were taken prisoners. They were brought into the king, King Nebuchadnezzar's household, and were being trained up. So when you think of war, I just want to bring us back. War is ugly. All you have to do is turn on your TV today, and you'll see Pictures, graphic pictures of the ugliness of war, of what's happening in the Middle East. Let's be clear. Families are destroyed. Parents are killed. Women are raped. Children are left as orphans. And if you are the one that is invaded, you can imagine the anger that would be seething in your heart, right? And so we have to explain why was it that Daniel and his friends were able to step into enemy territory and live the way they lived without living a life of anger and bitterness and just an all-out hatred of the Babylonians. In fact, we see just the opposite. So we have to answer those kinds of questions. How is it that they could live so differently. But to make sure that all of us are brought into a story like this, let's just ask a few questions. How many of us here have found ourselves in a situation we don't like? How many of us here have found ourselves in this place where we really don't want to be? How many of us are experiencing situations in our lives that we would do anything to get rid of, right? I mean, this is part of the warp and woof of life. And what we're gonna find out today is how we can begin to live differently when you find yourself where you don't wanna be. Maybe it's in a life situation, maybe it's a health situation, maybe it's a relationship situation. The multitude of issues, we all need to figure out how is it that God wants us to live. And today we're gonna begin to see even more clearly how you and I can live in that kind of world. But hey, before we go into the book of Daniel, we all are well aware of what's happening in Israel and the Gaza Strip. And of course, y'all been praying like I've been praying, asking God to not let this conflict spill over into the other Arab nations, not let it generate into a bigger, wider world conflict. But let's just be clear, we are living in the last days. Now, I'm not just making that up. It's not a matter of interpretation. It's very, very clear over and over. The Bible tells us these right now are the last days. And in the last of the last days, I don't know if we're in those, but I can say that 
as we get into the last of the last days, we're going to see more wars, more rumors of wars. We're going to see more earthquakes. Think Afghanistan. Think of the frequency of all that's happening over and over as we get closer to the end times. But now I want to read just a couple verses out of the book of Romans. You don't need to turn there. Just listen carefully. And Romans 11:25, he says, I do not want you brothers and sisters, talking to the church at Rome, but God is speaking to us today in the 21st century. He's saying to you, Fox Valley Church, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you may not be conceited. So God wants to bring us into the mystery of what he is doing in the world in the last days. Here it goes. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And that's exactly what we have witnessed, a partial hardening of the Jewish people against God and his Messiah. More Jews are atheistic or minimally agnostic to things of faith. That's the hardening while God is working in the world, it says here, to bring in the full number of Gentiles. Now that should excite you because you do not have to be a messiologist to know how many people are coming to Christ every day around the world. It would blow your mind how many people, maybe not in our country, but in other parts of the world, God is drawing so many people people to Christ. It is so exciting. They're converting in mass numbers, mass numbers, tens of thousands every day, so that by the end of one single year, millions have come into the kingdom. And that is continuing, it says, until the full number of Gentiles come in. So whenever God says, I've got my Gentiles, there will then be this huge move of the Spirit into the nation of Israel, listen to verse 26, so that all Israel will be saved. Now when it says all Israel, it does not mean every single Jew without exception. What he's saying is there will be a massive number of Jews coming into the kingdom, seeing Jesus as the Messiah, so that it's so expansive, so big, he can say all Israel will be saved, and that will be the number that God has. The deliverer, listen to this, the deliverer is who? The Messiah will come from Zion. He will, wow, my eyes. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Isn't that beautiful? He's gonna turn godlessness away from the nation of Israel. So we need to pray for Israel. We need to pray for what's happening there. We need to pray for peace we need to pray, but there's something else I feel very burdened for to pray this morning. We have in our midst a number of students. And we're in the book of Daniel, and you can't miss the fact that Daniel was probably in his mid to late teens in the story that we're reading. So when we think of our students here today, God is raising up a new generation. I do not want them to be Daniels. A lot of people say, be a Daniel. I don't want them to be Daniels. What I want them to do is be the women and men that God has called them to be living like a Daniel, living with the faith and exercising of 
the view of God that Daniel lived. So we need to pray for our students because they're entering a season in this world unprecedented. And we need a new generation raised up. So I want to pray those two things. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we come in the name of the Messiah. We come in the name of the anointed one, Jesus Christ, the one that you promised from the very beginning, right there in the garden, you hinted that there would be someone, there would be good news, and that promise just spilled out all the way into the New Testament where we see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, for Israel. We pray for Jews to come to know the living and true Messiah, the only true prophet. God, let them turn to him. But God, we ask for protection for this nation. We pray that you would hold this war in a confine, that it would not spread to wider regions, that as things begin to explode onto our TVs and more arguments are built, God, we pray for peace in our world. Just like we saw last week, God instructed the exiles, of which we are one, we are strangers and exiles in this world, just like they in Babylon were to work for the peace of the world at that time. We too should be working and praying for peace. So God, we pray for that. We pray that this would come to a good end. We pray, God, that you would remove these terrorist groups, that you would set them apart and that there would be an end to this kind of anarchy in our world so that there can be peace. God, protect the people. Protect the people. There's so many missionaries, frontline workers, that their families are being hit and they're being scared, yet they're bringing in the gospel. Give them that boldness. And now, God, I want to pray for our students. The, the, the students right here in this service, those that will be hearing this later on, we, we pray, God, that you would raise up a new generation, that our bold, courageous, God-fearing women and men that would serve for your kingdom purposes. God, prepare them as we hear and study the book of Daniel. Let them see that there is a powerful God at work and that they're going to need to choose. They have to make that decision of whom they're going to follow, whether they're going to follow Jesus Christ or the ways of the world. The God of this age has blinded so many don't let it blind our students, God, but open their eyes to the truth. Let them live with a vigorous energy that would only be described by the power of your spirit. So God, we pray for our students. We commit them to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if you're able to stand, could I invite you to stand? I want to read Daniel. We're in chapter 2 this morning. We're going to begin Daniel chapter 2. Verse 1, in the second year of the reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell them what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. 
But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell, uh, tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and so furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Amen, amen. We'll stop right there. Feel free to grab a seat as we dive in this morning, looking at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. You know, I, I just need to stop and pray for a moment. Father, we want to hear from you in your word. Not Tom's words, not ideas, but that you would speak to everyone here. Speak to them, God. Let your spirit envelop this place. Let your spirit move so powerfully it would be undeniable, like in 1 Corinthians. Surely God is among these people. That's what we want. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You know, I haven't done a whole lot in terms of giving a little bit of why the Babylonians were moved in, right? Remember we said last week that God decisively delivered his people into the hands of the Babylonians. But I haven't said exactly why. I, I said a few things, but in Jeremiah, the great prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13, here's kind of a succinct statement of why God said, I'm bringing Babylon. He said, my people have committed two sins. Pretty simple, isn't it? Not going to lose count here. The first one is this. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and secondly, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, let's be really clear. That, that, that first sin, forsaken me, can look a lot of different ways. It isn't always a, a, a straight up someone walks away from God. But let, let me give you kind of the essence of what's happened. They have a divided heart. Remember, these are Jews. They believe in God. Not too many people, once they have believed in God, just dismiss God. They, they rarely turn into total atheists. There's always this little hedge, maybe God is there. The Jews probably continued to believe in God, but they had turned against him. It, it, it's this divided heart. Now, this divided heart can look a lot of ways. Some people are in all-out rebellion, right? They, they just shake their fist at God. 
But others are a little more what we might call, and I don't mean to diminish any terms here, passive-aggressive, right? They say one thing, but they really mean another. They're holding back. They're not really dealing with God. Something comes into your life and you hate it. You dislike it, and so what do you do? You know you're not going to shake your fist at God, but you're going to give him lip service when in reality your heart is far from him. A dangerous place to be. They've forsaken him. Or sometimes there's just an indifference. People just going through the motions, but they're really indifferent. Don't ask me to do anything for God and his kingdom. Right? Just leave me alone. It's a very dangerous place to be because this is what God saw and brought the discipline to Israel. Remember, God says in Hebrews 12 that he disciplines those he loves. Can I just say and remind you, God loves you. He loves you so profoundly. He doesn't want anything to get between you and him. And so he's going to bring things into our lives that are hard and sometimes difficult and sometimes, candidly, impossible to explain because we know that when there's those situations, they drive us to God or they drive us away. For Israel, many of them were driven away. But there's a second here. It says that they would dig out their own cisterns. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Here God is saying that he is the living water, right? The spring of living water. Jesus preached this in John chapter 7. He said, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water if you turn to him. Living waters, because he's the living water himself, right? And here's where we, we see a picture of it. Well, digging your own cistern is saying what? I can find a way to make life work. I can find a way to make life work on my terms. I can have a little bit of God and a little bit of the world. Not going to go well for you. That's digging your own cistern. Those people that live in this divided heart mindset, this divided situation, are digging their own cisterns. But look what he says about these cisterns. He says that they cannot hold water. They will not sustain your life. You will die. You will shrivel up. You will shrink back. You will be miserably, miserable ultimately. So there's the reason. They've forsaken God and they've dug their own cisterns. Don't do it. Don't do it. But as we look at it, there's hope, right? But I want you to see as they were brought into discipline, their heart. Psalm 137, verses 1 to 4, it says, by the rivers of Babylon. So now they're in Babylon and they're weeping. We sat and wept. Isn't that true? When you're in a hard spot, I don't mean just something that's difficult. I mean hard. When you're really where you don't want to be, it brings tears. It brings a softness, and that's what's happening here. When we remembered Zion. Zion, of course, is what? That's the place where God dwells. 
there, right there, he says, on the poplars we hung our harps, made it very difficult for them to praise God. Wasn't that a great praise service this morning as Brad led us to worship God? Wasn't that good? I just felt, I, I, I kind of lost perspective for a moment and just found myself being kind of pulled up into heaven and worshiping him. I, I hope you experienced some of that this morning as well. Well, these people, they hung up their harps. It says, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors, notice captors and tormentors, right? They're mocking them. People mock you too. Oh, oh, you believe in God? Oh, you follow God? Oh, you give money? Oh, you serve? They're mocking. Demanding songs of joy, they said. Sing us one of songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Well, that's the time to sing, isn't it? It's the time to sing because when we praise God, it unleashes something in our soul. Remember last week I said that faith has its own rewards? You remember that phrase, faith has its own rewards? When you take the step of faith and worship, it unleashes something in your soul that's a reward a reward that there is a God in heaven, a reward that you can have peace and joy in the midst of what you're going through. Well, now, let's dive in a little deeper. I want to talk about people who know their God. People who know their God. Now, I'm not talking about people who know about God. Lots of people know about God. When I was at the University of Illinois, I had a professor that used to be a pastor, and and he would make these outlandish, harsh statements about the Bible and God. I remember I set up an appointment, and I said, you are so wrong to do what you're doing. You know, here I am, just a freshman, you know. And he said, young man, sit down. (laughs) And I sat down, and I got a little scared myself, right? He knew a lot about God but he didn't know God. There's a big difference. I knew about my wife when we got married. But after almost 40 years of marriage, I'm beginning to get to know her. (laughs) Women are hard to get to know. (laughs) You know, I want you to feel the difference between knowing about and knowing. People that know their God changes everything. It's amazing what knowing God really does to the human soul. Now, let's be really clear. Satan knows a lot about God, but he hates God. So, those who know their God, number one, have a strong confidence in God. Those women and those men who know God, not just about him, they have a rock-solid confidence in him. Now, remember I told you last week, it's not a story about Daniel and his friends and all that nice stuff. It's a story about the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, the pantheon, and the one true God. There's a conflict here. And so we, we see that, Dan, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, right, he, he has this, this 
dream. We find that in verse 1. He had dreams and it troubled him and he could not sleep. It scared him. And he thought the gods were saying something. And so he needed to get something. So what does he do? It says in verse verse 2, it says he summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers. He brings them together. And he says, tell your servant, they tell the king, tell your servants the dream, right? And, And then we'll interpret it. And King Nebuchadnezzar would have nothing to do with it. He said, you tell me the dream and you tell me the interpretation. And of course, you started feeling the conflict as we were reading through the story. And as we go deeper, the astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asked. Oh, true? Not quite so true as we'll find out. And then he goes on, he says, no one can reveal it to the kings except the gods and they do not live among the humans. If you got your Bible or you got your tablet or you got your device, you want to highlight that. And the gods do not live among the humans. How untrue for the Christian. Do you remember John chapter 1, verse 14? And God dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Wow. So they say no one can do it. Well, all this made the king angry. But what do we see with Daniel? We don't have a lot of time to look at all of this. So Daniel spoke to Arioch, the the commander, and the commander was coming to Daniel to, to, to kill him and to kill his friends because what happened? They couldn't tell the dream. All these other sorcerers, astrologers, and what. So he's going to kill them all. But what did Daniel do? right? He talks gently to Arioch, the, 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 the commander, but he does something next. He circles up a group of friends, doesn't he? Verses 14 to 18. He circles up his friends, and then he says, let's seek the true God for mercy. What a powerful move. Now, remember last week what I told you about Daniel? God gave him wisdom and knowledge. The king saw that he had so much wisdom and knowledge. He said, you have 10 times more than everyone else. Pause. Don't move any further in the book of Daniel until you grasp what's happening here. How many of you, including myself, will first of all turn to my own resources to try to fix a problem. Notice Daniel doesn't do that. He doesn't say, hey, God gave me all this knowledge 10 times more than that. I can figure this out. God's given me so much wisdom, I can figure it out. I am so prone to turn to my own resources before I turn to God. It's tragic. But I wonder if you're too much different than me. But what we begin to see with Daniel is he does something, he circles up his friends. How many of you, when you're in a tough spot, I mean tough, I'm not talking about just something that's hard, I'm talking hard, hard, hard. You circle up a group of friends that are God-fearing, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. A lot of us don't even have friends like that. 
few years ago, there was a family that just ran full bore on into a brick wall. First thing they did is they reached out to 12, 15 friends. Very confidential stuff. Very private. And they trusted these friends. And they laid out their story, the brick wall. And you know what we did for the next hour, hour and a half? Prayed. That's exactly what they did here. I wish I was more like that. When I was in my doctoral program, I'll never forget, there's three readers in my doctoral program, the program director, a first reader, and a second reader. The first reader is supposed to be in your corner. He's, he's the one that's supposed to support you and help you. So I'm days away from my dissertation. I had had enough conversations, but I thought, I better double check with my first reader. So I go set up an appointment with him, and he says, hey, Tom, I've decided I don't want to be your first reader in your defense. I'm going to be your second reader. Well, I already had a second reader. Those are your antagonists. I already had one. I need someone in my corner. He goes, I'm not going to defend your dissertation. There's a part of it I just am not too comfortable with. So I go to the program director, and he says, yeah, I'm kind of like him. I disagree. Now, what would a wise person do? Circle up some friends and say, in three days, I'm going to be in a mess. After seven years of studying and research and writing, it now comes down to this. I didn't do that. Oh, I shot up some prayers. God, help me. <laughs> God, deliver me. Aren't you glad that I'm not the model for you? But God had his way. I get into the defense just to wrap up that story. Was that they turned on each other. My second reader, who was my antagonist, came into my corner and defended me. And the three of them took the conversation for the next 45 minutes. I didn't have to say a word in my defense. <laughs> so Daniel prays. He circled up the wagons. But let's hit a second one. Those who know their God have resilient faith in God. Resilient faith. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. What I want you to see is a couple of things. Praise be to the name of God. That phrase, name of God. That's a, a, a shorthand for the attributes of God. You, you got to know who this God is. And he knows this God. He knows this God. And, and, and that's what's pulling his faith and strengthening him. Let, let's be really clear. Faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. But faith is more concerned about the object 
than the amount that you have. And Daniel's faith was in the object, the person of God. And look what he says. The name of God, he says, and he gives him a couple attributes, wisdom and power. He turns to the God who has all wisdom. He knows everything and he knows what to do with what he knows. And he has all power. People that know their God are impossible people. They're they're inexplicable. Read Hebrews chapter 11 and, and you start reading about people like Abraham who left the land and you say, why would he leave all of his comfort, all of his relatives, all of his friends to go to a foreign land? Because God called them, right? It was a resilient faith because he knew his God. Moses, why did Moses' parents hide Moses? Because the Bible says they had a faith in this God. Why did Moses give up everything in the Egyptian kingdom and go live among slaves, the people of Israel? Because he knew his God. See, when people know their God, their their, their faith is kindled. It goes deeper. He says, this God is the one who can change times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. This is a sovereign king. He raises up the people he wants in power, and he removes the ones that he does not. I mean, how do you explain it? How do you explain Noah building an ark? Because he knew his God. He knew his God. There's two marks that I want us to see this morning in this. The first one is prayer. People who know their God talk to God. That's what Daniel's doing. This resilient faith comes by prayer. When you pray, you are working out your faith. If you're honest. God, I'm struggling to trust you right now. You ever pray that? Talk to God. God, I don't like this. God, I want you to understand me, right? Prayer is where you work out what you believe, what you're struggling with, what you're doubting. Prayer is where life happens, and Daniel knows it. That's why he circles up his friends, and that's why he prays. And that's why his praise leads to praise. This God gives wisdom and knowledge to discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things, right? This God knows. But there's a second element. How do you get this faith? Start praying. And secondly, the word. The word. Do you know in this prayer, you can circle phrases and every phrase you can find in another part of the Bible? Daniel knew his Bible. When you know your Bible, you know your God. Why? Because that's where God has revealed himself. It is very dangerous to start thinking you know God if you're getting it from other people. You better make sure what you're hearing is anchored in the word. You better make sure you're going to be in trouble. There's a lot of voices out there. So my question is, who are you listening to? If it's not anchored in the words, you better be careful. Daniel's got everything anchored in the word. He understood the book of Genesis. He understood Exodus. He understood what was happening in 1 Kings and uh, Chronicles. Why do I know that? Because these phrases are coming from there. He understood what Isaiah wrote. 
How do I know? Because there's phrases coming out of Isaiah. These are the things that Daniel did. And so the question is, you will not cultivate a resilient faith if you're not a woman of prayer, if you're not a woman of the word, if you're not a man of prayer and a man of the word. So, so important. So God takes Daniel and reveals this dream, right? He, he interprets it for him. Daniel gets this dream. It says, for me, in verse 20, or verse 30, as for me, this mystery has been revealed. He doesn't say God revealed, but it's all in the passive. It's God revealing this dream. No other one could reveal it. Remember the other sorcerers, the other astrologers, nobody can do this, but God could. And he did. And he gives us a picture of all of this. Let's look at this picture real, real quickly here, right? We, we see in Daniel 29 to 30, he says, your majesty was lying there. Your mind turned to things. Reveal, the revealer of mysteries showed what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. And then verses 31 to 36, we begin to see what went through Daniel's or through Nebuchadnezzar's mind, and there's this picture, right? Let's read this real quickly. Your majesty looked, that is Nebuchadnezzar, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. This is Daniel. He's telling the king his dream. What no one else could do, Daniel could do, because he knew his God, and his God revealed this. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So let me give you a picture of this statue, right? He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head. You're the powerful one. But Nebuchadnezzar, this is not going to play well with a king. Your kingdom's powerful. It's the most powerful, but it's not going to last forever. It's going to come to an end. And there's going to be another one. And it's going to be the Medo-Persian. You know why? Secular people don't believe the book of Daniel is prophetic because they're saying there's no way he could have known this. There's no way he could have known what was going to happen with all these nations. The third one, the Greek Empire, right? And then that's going to be replaced by the powerful Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire has feet of clay, and we all know the Roman Empire collapsed too. The Roman Empire was so powerful, it spread through most of the known world at that time, and that too comes to a collapse. Why? Because of this rock, this destroying rock, which would be who? Jesus Christ, right? I mean, th this is so powerful to think about it. So it's this destroying rock, and and. Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar all of this, all this prophecy. Now, I'm flying through a little bit today because we're going to unpack more of this as we come forward in future weeks, but I want you to get the big picture. But let me hit the third point. Those who know their God have sweet contentment in God. They have contentment, contentment. In an age of anxiety, contentment is an amazing thing. And when you see it, it's amazing. 
verses 20, uh, 44 to 45. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Stop. Do you believe that? It's been established. And God is building it right now. It's spreading. That's why I talk about missionaries and missiologists, thousands of people. The subjects of the kingdom are coming in. And one day this kingdom is going to be fully here, fully explored, and it'll never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another. Not like Nebuchadnezzar goes to the Medo-Persian, goes to the Greek, goes to the Roman. This empire, this kingdom is Jesus. And he's not giving it to anybody. Right? He goes. He says, it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Contentment. Contentment. Contentment is not based on circumstances. Paul says, I know the secret of contentment. I know the secret. And then he tells us what the secret is. He says, I know that you can have plenty and you can have little and still have contentment. It's not about what you have. It's not about your circumstances. It's not about whether you have cancer or you have health. It's not whether you have a job or not have a job. It's not whether everything is going your way or whether there's a headwind that's blasting you every day. Contentment is an inner work of God that gives us this inner peace. Faith has its own rewards. When you trust the rock, the rock Jesus Christ, in Matthew 7, you will be on solid footing. And it's only then that you and I will have the contentment, the sweet contentment that God wants us to have. There's only one God that can give it. I want us to close in prayer. I'm going to invite the band out. I want us to sing the only God that can do this. The only God that can pull all this off is the God we are worshiping, the God Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you would set our hearts aflame again. Don't let us shrink back, but let us, God, believe you. People who know their God, these are people that can do amazing things, not because of themselves, but because of you, God. You are already doing great things. We just get to be a part of of it. God, let us be those people that believe you and know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing about our hope?